right, we are back. As we go to press, as it were, California awaits the second atmospheric river to strike in a week's period. We've just gotten done with one dumping that I think came very close to breaking the record in San Francisco. I'm not sure whether it actually did or not. Last year, back in 2021, I believe both Sacramento and San Francisco set records for the most rainfall in a 24-hour period. And the odd thing about it was that these events took place shortly after a prolonged and profound drought in the state. Now, it's true, we do occasionally get back-to-back atmospheric rivers. Back in 1861... Sacramento was pretty much underwater from uh, a series of, uh, of deluges. And they put a new name on this phenomenon of weather whiplash, described as a paradoxical phenomenon when areas experiencing wilting drought are also hit with torrential flooding. And apparently it's on the rise. The United States has baked under record heat waves and crippling drought this past summer, with roughly half the country experiencing at least moderate drought and huge swaths of the West, Midwest and Texas, under severe drought conditions. The rumor is, in the southwest part of the United States, they are now experiencing their worst drought in 1,200 years, causing the Colorado River to pretty much dry up. But, wouldn't you know it, this summer also brought five, no less than five, thousand-year floods. Defined as deluges so extreme, they have only a 0.1% chance of happening in any given year. And four of those were in areas experiencing drought. Last July, St. Louis got a nine-inch downpour that trapped people in their homes. Even Death Valley, which is the driest spot in America, saw nearly a year's worth of rainfall in several hours in August. Of course, that, that amounted to like an inch and a half, but still. If you've been following the weather news, you note that in Europe, they're having the worst drought they've had in 500 years. They're finding in various dried-up rivers in Europe exposed, sunken World War II ships, some of which contain munitions. Pakistan got an epic heat wave of temperatures above 120 degrees, which was followed by monsoon rains that displaced millions, killing at least 1,300. Now, it's been noted, I think since James Hansen was pointing out to the world that global warming was coming back in the 1980s, that... Warmer air contains a lot more moisture, meaning we're going to have more strange flooding-type events and, you know, hurricanes, etc., because of it. Writing about this topic in The Week magazine, it was noted that California may experience a mega-flood in the future. And by the future, they mean the next couple decades. This comes from a warning issued in August in a report by UCLA's climate scientists. They say that warming has worsened the risk of a monster storm that would funnel water from the Pacific Ocean and dump as much as 100 inches in some parts of the state. This beast of a storm could displace up to 10 million people, submerge entire cities, and turn Central California into a vast inland sea, which it once was. Now, when this happens, and I'm guessing that it probably will, there'll probably be some finger-pointing in Sacramento, in the Natomas Basin, where the powers that be decided to give in to real estate interests and develop the floodplain, even though it was judged to be the most flood-prone area in the U.S., this side of New Orleans, Louisiana. Damages from this event uh, could top $1 trillion. And the week does note that it was in 1862, I guess I had it one year off, 
wherein there was 30 consecutive days of rain unleashing massive floods across the state. But at that time, the state's population was under a half million, and now it's nearly 40 million. The odds, if you're keeping score of such a storm happening in a given year, have risen to 1 in 50. And those odds will continue to rise as the planet warms. Co-author Daniel Swain said, The disaster will come. It's a question of when rather than if. So you folks living out there in the Thomas Basin, yeah, you might want to give your realtor a call and see if he can't find for you a greater fool. I remember when we first started doing this program and they were questioning then-Mayor Heather Fargo about the wisdom of building out in her area, and she said, well, we've got all these commitments with developers. We can't, you know, just turn our back on them. Oh, hell no. Of course, one upside to this torrent of water, which is apparently going to strike again in the next couple of days, and of course, it's going to be so much worse because the ground is soaked at this point. It's all going to run off and go into streams and uh, down streets and everywhere you look. Now, the good news associated with this is it may do something to prevent uh, any algal blooms in San Francisco Bay. We had such a bloom uh, last Labor Day. It was a massive fish kill everywhere you looked in the bay. Now, the reporting at that time said that experts and water quality regulators have little idea about when this so-called red tide event will end. Writing in the Bay Area News Group, Jacob Rogers, in answer to the question of what's killing all the fish, said no specific cause has been officially determined, though environmental groups and water quality regulators suspect that a red algal bloom is to blame. They then talk about the type of phytoplankton that's the source of this, but didn't mention too much about the fact that it appears that this algal bloom was enhanced, shall we say, by the poop and pee that flooded into San Francisco Bay. And no, Mr. Mellon, in this case, it's not the homeless that are to blame. It's the millions of people who live in the Bay Area and, you know, pardon the expression, poop and pee. And yes, they do process our sewage uh, in, in the Bay Area, but they don't do a complete job. The nutrient load, as they're calling it, of nitrogen does not get reduced in sewage treatment plants. Article about this in the San Francisco Chronicle, dating back to September 5th, notes that the San Jose Santa Clara Regional Wastewater Facility, which serves Silicon Valley, releases more discharged water into the Bay than any other large facility, an average of 85 million gallons per day with a nitrogen load of 5.5 tons per day. Of course, wouldn't you know it, San Francisco, the city that for years and years uh, treated sewage by putting a very, very, very long pipe out in the Pacific. Well, the good people in San Francisco, they released 55 million gallons of wastewater, which is considerably less than the 85 million in San Jose. But wouldn't you know it, they got 9.5 tons of nitrogen in their waste. Now, they could process the sewage more thoroughly and take care of this problem, but it's going to be expensive. They're saying $14 billion to do it. Anyway, yeah, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, they have red tides. It's a natural phenomenon. You know, you can't really blame it on the sewage, but uh, yeah, you can. And they still seem to be arguing about what La Nina is going to do to our weather patterns, but it seems pretty clear at this point in time that La Nina is uh, dousing us. Anyway, a lot of folks are, are asking in the, in the, in the wake of, of global warming and all the climate change, if it, if it isn't already the year 2050, since the things we've been predicting might show up by that year, seem to be, well, they seem to be a little bit early. 
I know there's been some talk of, of sea level rise as much as 80 feet by the end of the century, which is going to be pretty bad news for people like in Davis, where the airport's elevation is 22 feet. I don't get much consolation where I live. I believe that where I'm sitting right now in front of a microphone, I'm 84 feet above sea level. I think I can say with some confidence I won't be sitting here in the year 2100. And speaking of the poop and pee emanating from Silicon Valley, and how's that for a segue? We need to take a turn at this point into one of our favorite ongoing topics, big tech and what it's doing for us. And I can't resist quoting from the immortal Albert Einstein at this point, who once said, technological progress is like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal. And how about this from Franz Kafka? Believing in progress does not mean believing that any progress has yet been made. And let's do two more related, we think, to tech. One from Bertrand Russell. Even when all the experts agree, they may well be mistaken. And author Douglas Adams, who once said, A common mistake that people make when trying to design something completely foolproof is to underestimate the ingenuity of complete fools. Well, we don't underestimate the ability of complete fools, especially those working in Silicon Valley. But we brought up the subject in passing a couple weeks back about this new chat GBT. This is a chatbot from an artificial intelligence research lab called OpenAI. It's being described as so good it's almost sorcery. At least that's from Kevin Roos in the New York Times, which as we all know is never wrong. I got to say one thing. When it comes to technological advancements, it just seems like Silicon Valley is, is an incredible PR factory. For example, we've been told for years that drones are going to just change our lives in a great way. And I do understand that killer drones have done wonders for the Ukrainians when they were able to use them to attack the Russians and drop bombs from drones. But they're not very big drones yet, so they're not able to drop really large bombs. And more close to home here, as reported on this program a couple of weeks back, San Francisco has now reversed its killer robots plan. Last November, the city's Board of Supervisors approved a police proposal authorizing law enforcement to deploy remote-controlled ground-based robots to use deadly force when there's imminent risk to life. Anyway, being that yours truly is a pilot, I've taken a dim view of the idea that drones are going to be up uh, flying uh, everywhere around us, dropping packages, you know, in our yard. Of course, it is noted by people that drones as yet can't really carry much more than about five pounds per load. And, you know, what could possibly go wrong with having a five-pound object 300 feet over your head? Last October, I believe we quoted from a Thomas Black writing in Bloomberg who asked, how often do we need an airdropped item 30 minutes after placing an order? Residents in a region in Australia where Google's uh, drone has been testing have been complaining that drones are noisy and stressful. And if you've seen photos of these four-legged dog-like creatures that uh, they're able to put machine guns on, well, you just, you, just, I don't, you just have to have some doubts about the wisdom of some of these things they're developing. But friends of mine who live in Silicon Valley were speaking in glowing terms about this new chat GPT. In case you're wondering, the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. The New York Times, through Kevin Roos, said it feels different from most of today's rigid and unnatural chatbots. This one can write jokes, some of which are actually funny, can work computer code, and write college-level essays. Mouthing off about this, Bloomberg in an editorial said that ChatGPT 
is the latest sign of true artificial intelligence revolution. Although its creators acknowledge that it sometimes offers answers that are precise, authoritative, and utterly wrong. Well, I don't see why that would be a problem. Yeah, I guess that does make it somewhat more human-like. Anyway, another glowing article in the New York Times from someone named Cade Mintz described how a uh, computer programmer, a man named Jeremy Howard, actually he's an artificial intelligence researcher, he exposed his seven-year-old daughter to chat GPT and told her to ask the experimental chatbot whatever came to mind. She asked what trigonometry was good for, where black holes come from, and why chickens incubate their eggs. Each time it answered in clear, well-punctured prose. When she asked for a computer program that would predict the path of a ball thrown through the air, it gave her that too. The artificial intelligence researcher, Mr. Howard, then sort of came to see the chat box as a new kind of personal tutor. He said it's a thrill to see her learn like this. But I also told her, don't trust everything it gives you. It can make mistakes. How is it you would check on your chatbot? Yes, Mr. Millen, I guess you would have to ask another chatbot. And then I guess take a chatbot consensus. Now, the claim is being made that these, uh, this chatbot, uh, ChatGPT, writes very well. And in some cases can give you better answers to your questions than you're going to find by just going on to Google or Bing. And then it quotes Aaron Levy, who's CEO of a Silicon Valley company. Jeez, I don't suppose he's got anything, you know, negative to say about these things. No, he said, you now have a computer that can answer any question in a way that makes sense to a human. But the New York Times had to say these new chatbots do this with what seems like complete confidence, but they do not always tell the truth. Sometimes they even fail at simple arithmetic. They blend fact with fiction. The article noted that Google recently built a system specifically for conversation called Lambda, or Language Model for Dialogue Applications. And of course, uh, last spring, a Google engineer claimed it was sentient, which Google at every point has been backing away from. In talking about Lambda, one of the sources said it kept him entertained, but he warned that it could be a bit of a fabulist. What it gives you is a kind of Aaron Sorkin movie. He said, Sorkin wrote The Social Network, a movie often criticized for stretching the truth about the origin of Facebook. Parts of it will be true, and parts of it will not be true. And they're quoting here an Aaron Margulis, described as a data scientist in Virginia, who asked both Lambda and ChatGPT to chat with him as if it were Mark Twain. When he asked Lambda, it soon described a meeting between Twain and Levi Strauss and said the writer had been working for the Blue Jeans mogul while living in San Francisco in the mid-1800s. This seemed true, but it was not. Twain and Strauss did live in San Francisco at the same time, but they never worked together. Scientists call that problem hallucination. Much like a good storyteller, chatbots have a way of taking what they've learned and reshaping it into something new, with no regard for whether it is true. Now, I have to admit, we, we do see how it is Lambda or ChatGPT might be able to replace Donald Trump. The piece notes that Google, Meta, and other companies have addressed accuracy issues with chatbots. Meta recently removed an online preview of its chatbot, Galactica, because it repeatedly generated incorrect and biased information. Experts, notes the Times, have warned that companies do not control the fate of these technologies. Systems such as ChatGPT, Lambda, and Galactica are based on ideas, research papers, and computer code that have circulated freely for years. 
companies like Google and OpenAI can push the technology forward at a faster rate than others, but their latest technology have been reproduced and widely distributed. They cannot prevent people from using these systems to spread misinformation. Does anyone see a potential problem here? Besides the fact that, you know, you send your kid off to school and and in his English class, instead of writing an essay, he goes over and downloads chat GPT and pushes a button. Well, sounding off on that very thought, Glenn Kramen, who is described as a lecturer on practical writing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, wrote an op-ed piece that included the following. When my students at Stanford Business School demonstrated the product in the classroom last week, I feared for my job. Writing emails and memos is what I teach. I found the AI-generating work amazing, then breathed a sigh of relief. These early attempts at AI, at best, automate mediocrity, and sometimes they get it wrong entirely. My research student, Matt Gibstein, now founder of an investment firm backing consumer technology, what a surprise, asked the chatbot, write an email to Glenn Kramen, a lecturer at Stanford and newspaper editor, in a tone that is persuasive and likely to make Glenn inclined to take a brief phone call. Please reference a specific article he's written and say how much I enjoyed it. Said Kramen, I laughed when I read the result. The email began, I hope this email finds you well. As my 2,000 former students will tell you, never start an email that way. Beginning with, hope you are well, makes you one of a million. You want to be one in a million. The email continues, I am a huge fan of your work, also a sycophantic cliché and mentions, quote, my article on the rise of automation and its impact on the workforce, calling it incredibly thought-provoking and well-written, notes Mr. Kramen. I've written no such article, although I did oversee a project on this subject seven years ago. It continues, I am reaching out because I'm currently working on a project. My students would snicker. Unnecessary adverbs, particularly currently, are my pet peeve. Anyway, he pretty much gives it a thumbs down for now. Concluding at the end of the article, my best advice to those ready to seed out to the computer, don't outsource your writing to an AI overlord, at least not yet. Before we leave the subject of big tech, I'd like to return to a couple things we talked about last year. A column in New Scientist by Annalee Newitz said, Ms. Newitz, trapped between an insurrection and a strike, Silicon Valley has enabled the U.S. to get into a huge mess. It must start taking responsibility for its political power. She notes in the piece that Facebook's targeted advertising system enabled Donald Trump's team to aim extremist content at his core audience while aiming more palatable stuff at centrist voters. He could be one candidate for white supremacists who wanted to build a wall and quite another for unemployed laborers who wanted the coal mines back open. Put in the language of Silicon Valley, Trump was able to trumpet in real time at scale using mobile apps. As we watched live feeds of insurrectionists storming our Capitol building on January 6th, it became clear that incitement to deadly violence isn't just rhetoric or, quote, free speech, unquote. Under certain circumstances, it can lead to murder and sedition. To which she adds, the most awful part is that Trump's presidency was in some ways a boost for Silicon Valley. Twitter's business model, if one can call it that, is to reel in new users with its roster of chatty celebrity accounts. What could be a bigger draw than the ultimate celebrity, the president himself? She notes later, as we stand in a teetering tower, 
of our democracy, it is clear the time has come for Silicon Valley companies to acknowledge that they are key to our political process. We've been saying that on this program for years. We want to thank her for uh, expressing it so clearly. And finally, let's revisit a piece we talked about in October, which is that a third of scientists working in AI say it could cause catastrophe on the scale of nuclear war. An article by Jeremy Sue noted that these findings come from a survey of 327 researchers who recently co-authored papers on AI research. The survey at New York University notes that 36% of all respondents think nuclear-level catastrophe is possible. The article quoted a Paul Scher at the Center for a New American Security, a think tank in Washington, saying it would require people to do some dangerous things with military uses of AI technology. The piece notes that U.S. military officials have expressed concerns about arming drones with nuclear weapons. Gee, you think? Let alone giving AI a major role in nuclear command and control systems. But Russia is reportedly developing a drone torpedo with autonomous capabilities that could deliver a nuclear strike. Well, in summary, I would say that if we're kind of down on drones in this program, we are definitely down on drones with nuclear capability. But we do think that we need to check out ChatGPT. We're going to have our artificial intelligence expert, Mr. Donald Rose, see if he can't download the program and then attempt to recreate a radio parallax script that we may use to see how it compares with our normal broadcast. We're pretty sure that's going to be a hoot and a holler, so stay tuned. All right, in the five minutes we have left, uh, well, it turns out I have kind of a somber subject, a very serious matter. But it's okay. I think we've had more than our share of frivolity to date on this program, so let's, let's delve into this. I have two articles I've been sitting on for a while, actually since November, about the origin of COVID. We might have made passing mention to it on the program, but one comes from The Economist. The title was The Origins of COVID, Thesis, Antithesis, Synthesis, question mark, and a briefing from the week titled Debating COVID's Origins. We've gone back and forth in this program. At first, we endorsed the notion that um, the Wuhan wet market probably was the pandemic's epicenter, but there's cause to doubt this at this point. The alternate origin theory for SARS-CoV-2 is it was created at the Wuhan Institute for Virology, where scientists were studying bat coronaviruses. That coincidence is kind of, well, a little too glaring to ignore, say backers of the lab leak theory, which posits that the virus infected someone from the lab who then spread it in Wuhan, possibly by making a visit down to the wet market. Now, lab leak theorists point to the Chinese government's obstruction of investigations into COVID's origin and the lab's activities. They cite a U.S. intelligence report that several lab workers were hospitalized with a COVID-like illness in November of 2019. Some scientists say the virus's extraordinary infectiousness among humans suggested underwent gain-of-function alteration in a lab. Former CDC director Robert Redfield was quoted as saying, A virus that comes out of a bat cave and infects humans by the millions is not biologically plausible. And in an interim report, signed off on by Senator Richard Burr, Republican of North Carolina, that looked into this, well... That interim report asserted that the pandemic was, quote, most likely the result of a research-related incident, end quote. Burr and others have cited the fact that virologists have to date been unable to find a wild animal that carries the SARS-CoV-2 virus, 
although similar viruses are found in bats. Similar, but not close enough. The piece in The Economist goes into some of the details about the sequencing of the virus and note that some suspicious sequences arose that made it look to some as though the genome had been manipulated because that's the kind of thing they can do these days, genetically modify organisms. Or virus isn't really an organism, but you know what I mean. Now, we're not experts on genetic engineering of viruses, that's for damn sure, but people that are say that the sequences look suspicious to them. Anyway, both The Week and The Economist uh, ended out by saying, well, there is a debate here. It's not settled. They added it may never be settled. But then yours truly came across an article, which was the combined efforts of ProPublica and Vanity Fair, which is, to say the least, a fascinating look using a novel approach, in this case something more akin to military intelligence than genetics. Unfortunately, I'm running out of time with only about a minute to go, so I'm only going to be able to just briefly quote from the beginning of that article. We will finish it up on next week's program or the one after. What ProPublica and Vanity Fair were able to do was get their hands on communications from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and take a look at the language that was used. And the piece starts with a linguistic expert named Toy Reed, who was described as always having had a gift for languages. He was at one point a China specialist for the RAND Corporation, and as a political officer in East Asia for the U.S. State Department, he learned how to interpret the notoriously opaque language, which is the party-speak practiced by Chinese communist officials. Said Reed, the party speaks its own lexicon. Even a native Mandarin speaker can't really follow it. It's not meant to be easily understood. It's almost like a secret language of Chinese officialdom. When they're talking about anything potentially embarrassing, they speak of it in innuendo and hushed tones. And there are certain acceptable ways of alluding to something. Anyway, to briefly summarize, when Reed studied the words that were used in some of these communications, it seemed that there were references being made to a past accident. There was also seemed to be an admission of an ongoing crisis and perhaps a general recognition of hazardous practices. We'll discuss this at length next week. Vanity Fair and ProPublica admit that the three Chinese language experts that were subsequently commissioned by them said the passages described were ambiguous, although Reed's translation was plausible, just that it was not the only way to represent it. There's a lot more to the story, and we're going to have to unfortunately return to it later. I'm at this point convinced that the case for a laboratory accident is stronger than ever and at this point is more persuasive than the notion that a bat virus suddenly and mysteriously jumped into the Wuhan wet market. But it'll have to wait for another day. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who to date has resisted all efforts to be taken to a Chinese wet market. I do want to note at this point that both Ms. Marillan and I have contributed to the research done to COVID by having contracted the virus ourselves. We're better now. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax, and we expect to have a lot of curious things to talk about in 2023. Stay with us. <laughs>